It's a heck of a good deal for them. How billionaires pay millions to hide trillions. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig dignity of man. Plutocracy and oligarchy are not democracy unimaginable wealth for a very few with ever-worsening economic insecurity for everyone else is not a republic. Economic school history routinely includes mention of the incredible wealth inequality of the Gilded Age in the 1890s and the heroic efforts of people like Upton Sinclair, author of The Jungle, to rein it in and restore the government to serving the common good. Well, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. The Gilded Age is back, quite possibly more severely than it was before the reform brought by the insistent efforts of the patriotic trustbusters of the early 20th century. How has this happened? How do we go from being the country I grew up in, which had a large and solid middle class, a country that prided itself on social mobility, to one where one-tenth of one percent just a few hyper-wealthy families have almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. And it'd be one thing if they paid their fair share of taxes, but of course that is far from reality. As a new book by our guest Chuck Collins called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And despite the common reaction, oh, they made their money, let them have it all, the problem of hidden wealth is our collective problem. You and I must pay the taxes that they don't. Chuck Collins, great to have you back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, hey, thank, thanks for having me, Bert. Long introduction here I got about y your record. It's very impressive, so hang on. Chuck Collins is director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies and co-editor of Inequality.org. He's an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide. He co-founded Wealth for the Common Good, a network of business leaders, high-income households, and partners working together to promote shared prosperity and fair taxation, as well as United for a Fair Economy, an organization focused on raising the profile of the inequality issue and supporting popular education and organizing efforts to address it. Collins is the author of numerous books and reports, including Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good, 99 to 1, How Wealth Inequality is Wrecking the World, 
and what we can do about it, and with the late Bill Gates Sr., Wealth and Our Commonwealth, a case for taxing inherited fortunes, and this new one, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Such a good deal. <laughs> Colin says we are in an age of plutocratic plunder and stashed cash. And Bernie Sanders says of his new book, Chuck's book reveals not only the inner workings of this elaborate scheme to hide more than $20 trillion in wealth, it offers us a blueprint for reversing this obscene inequality so we can take back our democracy. A blueprint, what we can do. It's going to take a group effort, but a blueprint helps a lot. Well, this system of enforced economic fairness and an ever-widening wealth gap didn't just happen by accident. Your new book introduced me to something I had not heard of, the wealth defense industry. We've heard a lot about the super wealthy, but virtually nothing about the army of financial and legal professionals who help them protect and boost their untaxed wealth. So if you would, please, Chuck, take a few minutes to tell us what is the wealth defense industry, what are its tools, and what sectors of our economy participate in it? Well, again, that was a, uh, thank you for that introduction and, 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 and setting the context so well. Um, and, you know, as you can tell, I, you and I have both been concerned about these issues of growing inequality, which led me to sort of understand, well, who, what's, who's driving the boat here? You know, is it wealthy people just, um, you know, lobbying to, to, to get tax cuts? Uh, you know, what, what, and, and, and that's what sort of drew me to this concept. Um, and actually, there's a terrific sociologist named Jeffrey Winters who wrote a, a, a kind of an academic book called Oligarchy. Uh, and he coined this phrase, wealth defense industry. And that what distinguishes an oligarch from a regular wealthy person mm. is they invest in wealth defense. They, they use their wealth to rig the rules to keep their wealth and make, make even more wealth. And uh, that's, that's sort of the, the, the democracy poisoning aspect of this. Um, so wh who is the wealth defense industry? Well, they are uh, tax attorneys, estate planners, um, accountants, um, and people who run family offices whose, whose work is for people in that sort of, you could say at the top one tenth of 1%, people right. with $30 million or more. Ooh. And, uh, and, and their job is to make the wealthiest people on the planet look like they have less money on paper so they can dodge taxes and accountability for their actions. <laughs> Yeah, I'm laughing because it's like, how much money can you? I don't, I don't get it. I mean, there's nothing wrong in my opinion with being wealthy, but what? <laughs> how greedy can you be? It's amazing to me, and not care about the country in which you live. How long has this wealth defense industry been around? I know that Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex back in '61. How long has this wealth defense industry been around? probably since there were ever tax systems, you know, there were always ways in which wealthy people hired people, their, their helpers to, to reduce their taxes. But, um, you know, what's interesting is in, a, in the second gilded age, which you set up, you know, this, this, the last 40 years of, of growing income and wealth inequality, uh, this industry has grown. It just, it corresponds with the rise of billionaire wealth and the fact that these folks, 
um, you know, hire uh, these wealth defenders to to protect their assets. So, you know, I, I, in 1980, I remember, you know, learning about what was a family office. You know, we could talk more about this, but family offices are basically sort of where wealthy families, usually starting with about a quarter of a billion dollars of wealth, mm. bring bring these services in house. You know, or in mansion. They they basically, uh, uh, you know, instead of going to Fidelity or going to some outside firm, they basically create uh, a bunch of people who report directly to them in a family office. And, you know, maybe in 1980, there were a thousand family offices globally helping super rich families. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, 100 years ago, started his first the first family office, the modern family office. But what we know now is there's almost 10,000 family offices around the world, again, catering to the wealthiest people in the world, a thousand of them in London alone. So I guess I would say there's been a mushrooming of mm. this wealth defense sector in the last 15 years. I wonder, I mean, in, in a, unlike other cultures, America is, it's traditional to hate taxes. As long as there have been taxes, there have been those intent on dodging them. How is the situation today any different? Is it just better, more fine-tuned? Well, you know, one thing we do know is that the taxes on the wealthy have just been tumbling downwards for decades, uh, you know, under, under the socialist presidency of Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, right. uh, the, the, the richest people in the country paid you know, a high income tax rate closer to 90% right. over 90% over like a 2 million income threshold in today's right. dollars. Right. So it's really focused on the very tippy toppy, maybe a couple thousand families at the most paid that rate, but, but it was there. Um, and now the effective tax rate for billionaires in the United States is, is closer to 23%. That's the actual percentage of income that that people pay, so it's it's been progressively coming down, um, and and so um, that that's where we can say, well, okay, yeah, there's always been tax avoidance. There were lots of loopholes under the Eisenhower days, mm, yeah, sure. but for the super wealthy, it's becoming more and more optional, especially inheritance, estate taxes, more and more optional for the super wealthy. Yeah, interesting. And uh, as I recall, under Eisenhower, there was a large, solid middle class. There was prosperity for a lot of people back then. The charts, the graphs looked very different back then in terms of the share of the wealth. And back then, you know, people, some people believe, well, if we tax the super rich, then that'll stop economic growth. And it's, I can't even believe we have to talk about the trickle-down theory. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's never, ever worked. And historically, both the UK and the US have projected themselves as being the world's leading democracies. Of course, the wealth in the UK triple, trickled up from the bottom of their globe-spanning empire. Now the British Empire is gone, but both countries remain what you call the world's democracy-distorting wealth enablers. Tell us about that, please. Well, yeah, what's interesting is if you look out across the world and say, what are the secrecy jurisdictions? What are the countries where 
the super rich globally are stashing their cash in anonymous shell companies or banks. They tend to be in the old British Empire Commonwealth countries. Um, you know, the British Virgin Islands, uh, the islands of Guernsey and Jersey right off the UK, mm. um, uh, the Cayman Islands, sure. Belize. Uh, you know, so, so my, you know, when we, you know, as we talk about how do you fix the system, well, between the United States and the UK, if we kind of got our own houses in order, and, and that's happening a lot faster in the UK right now, we could huh. lean on all these crown dependencies, that's what they call them still, who still are subject to larger British law and, and, and judicial oversight. Uh, so it wouldn't take long for us to, to shut the system down if there was the political will. Hmm. People think, well, oh, we can't do anything about this. You know, one country over here, it's like whack-a-mole. You, <laughs> you, you close down you know, the Cayman Islands and, the, and Bermuda will rise up. Well, actually, not necessarily if the two biggest economic superpowers in the world are on the on the transparency side of the fix. Uh, it, won't, it won't take long. It won't take long. You get the European Union and the UK and the US and basically you got 90 percent of this global economic financial sector involved and boom, game, game over for the wealth hiders. So I, did I hear you right that the UK is doing better than we are on this stuff? And what are they doing? Yeah. So remember when the Panama Papers came out five years ago? Sure. It was a dramatic uh, kind of leak that came out of one law firm in Panama. What happened was interesting was uh, the, the people in the Europe were much more embarrassed and implicated. Uh, Prime Minister David Cameron was tied up in the Panama Papers, the president of Iceland. And it sort of shone a light more on the on the systems in those countries, and be, so they started to reform. They started to push for transparency laws, corporate disclosure of who the real owners are. Uh, they boosted bank reporting requirements, uh, and and started to do more to sort of shut down some of the illicit finance systems. Meanwhile, the U.S. has been the laggard. We didn't do anything. So. You know, in a fairly short time, uh, the U.S. has gone to like the number two spot on the secrecy jurisdiction list because we've done nothing to, you know, very little to fix our system where the rest of the world is kind of pushing forward. Interesting. Well, maybe <laughs> caring about your, your public image and having some sort of a, a concern about ethics and morality Gosh, what a concept. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, th something that gets in the way of democracy that we can address. Our guest today is Chuck Collins, who's written a new book that we're talking about called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And I, I, I'm kind of a history nut these days. And I've, I've read about... Europe, the Europe-wide revolutions of 1848. I was amazed to learn that the strongest defenders of the aristocracy were the peasants. Throughout my lifetime, people in the lower rungs of the income scale have likewise come to the aggressive defense of the very richest. The common refrain is, well, they earned it, let them keep it. And except for a few 
idealistic doctrinaire Marxist, the vast majority of Americans agree. There's nothing wrong with being rich, but there is rich and there's hyper-rich, and a lot of the rich do pay the fair share of taxes. Of some, at some level of wealth, you contend the rich kind of move from elites to oligarchs. What is that level, and what degree of wealth inequality do you believe a healthy democracy can sustain? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I actually have an opinion. I don't know how you know, which is that once people have sort of hit the $30 million threshold, uh, they have taken care of their needs and wildest desires, as well as taking care of their children in the next generation. And at that point, it becomes an exercise in power accumulation. Uh, and there, that's when from a democracy point of view, we uh -huh. should be waving the flag. We should be like, whoa, wait a second. These are now you know, this is the level of wealth at which people really start to distort the system, start to rig the rules, start to use their economic, political, and social power to get more power and wealth. Mm. Um, and you could say, well, maybe it's less than that, or maybe it's more, but I, I kind of think, and that's the level at which people also really aggressively start investing in this wealth defense industry. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we had Donald Trump and others say, you know, Ah, I, I pay so little taxes because I'm smart. Right. But in fact, it's I I pay so little taxes because I have a lot of people working for me <laughs> uh, to to hide my money and and reduce my taxes. I I actually suspect he has less money. So you know, it's it's strange how some people try to show off their money, but people with real money tend not always, but tend to you know downplay it a little bit. But uh, I actually I'm hopeful that psychologists and psychiatrists will someday look at this bizarre, incredibly unhealthy, in my opinion, frenzy for more, more, more by people who have incredible amounts of money. It's got to, it's, I think it's sick. And I think maybe they can treat it someday. I don't know. Meanwhile, <laughs> I have a, I have a friend who, who, who calls it excessive wealth disorder. <laughs> uh, that, that it is kind of a, it has huge social implications, and the rest of us participate by exalting and worshiping the wealthy. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's a cultural thing, and I think you're right. I think uh, it's sort of when when something is badly out of whack, both in the personal and social psychological state, you know, that we, we you know, and it, you, you said it at the beginning, it's like, how much is enough? You know, at a certain point, it's not about, it's about keeping score, or maybe it's about immortality and creating some kind of legacy. You know, we all, you know, you, as I, as best I understand it, you cannot take it with you. You know, you can't take this wealth <laughs> to the other side, but you so. could immortalize yourself by creating, you know, edifices with your name on them. Yes. Buildings and private foundations that will live forever, and your name will be worshipped, and people will go to the Arthur Sackler Gallery for the next hundred years or whatever. You know, just like uh, so, there's something going on that's a little broken. Uh, yes, definitely. So I, I, I think so. And uh, you know, when I when I think about wealth, I mean, thirty million dollars—that's a lot of money. And people like uh, Jeff Bezos and others have what a hundred fifty billion and 
I, I can't even get my hands, you know, my head around, as they say, a billion. A billion is a thousand million. So a hundred billion? What? I mean, we, we need things in this country. We need infrastructure improvements. And I'm glad Biden is starting to talk about increasing taxes on the wealthy. And you, you brought up you know, being immortal, having your name on things. I always thought that was a little bit tacky while you're still alive. But anyway, uh, some people, not all of extreme wealth, are proud to display their philanthropy. Do such entities benefit the recipients or the philanthropists themselves more? Talk about that, if you would, please. And their effect on taxes. Yeah, you know, I think we should be very skeptical about billionaire philanthropy. Uh, which is which is to say, there are things that are good. You know, I mean, I I was sort of struck when uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, you know, uh, Mackenzie Scott, last year moved six billion dollars to racial justice groups and COVID relief efforts, without creating a big foundation or intermediary, without a lot of fanfare, really entrusting local groups. So. Mm. There are these examples of billionaires, I think, you know, doing the best they can with the, the with this enormous, not the, you know, with this enormous wealth that they have. But for the most part, I think the way we should view it is, first of all, this is a taxpayer subsidized endeavor. Yes. yes. For, for every billion dollars, for every dollar a billionaire gives to charity, 74 cents of that is the rest of us chipping in in the form of reduced taxes. So it's not just a private individual, you know, generously deciding where to give their money. You're right. It we 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 chip in for that. And and there's something wrong I think with the system where people ha- who are super wealthy have the option of opting out of paying taxes by giving to a private foundation that they control. It starts to look like a, a taxpayer subsidized uh, form of private power and influence. Mm-hmm. So we should, from a democracy point of view, we should be very concerned about sort of the growth in billionaire philanthropy and how distracting it is uh, from the reality that it's not a substitute for a fair tax system. It's not a substitute right. for uh, the public investments at the state, local, and national level that we need. It right. it kind of kind of turns our head in a way that Oh, you know, the Sacklers were so generous. They funded all those museums. Why, you know, they couldn't possibly be doing anything bad. <laughs> you know, it, 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 whatever it, 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 oh, yeah. it's distracting. So, so I think, you know, it, it's a little nuanced, I guess, is what I'm saying is, you know, there is some good stuff that happens, but, right. um, yeah. And, and we, and it's great to have it an, an independent sector that isn't corporate, that isn't the state where good stuff can happen. But that's not a substitute for a healthy public sector with a fair tax system. So yeah, yeah and and who are they to to decide oh, this is the best thing to do with all this money? Most of us, when we pay our taxes, we're not exactly sure what the government's doing with it. We try to change it by you know voting for people we like and and you know making our voices heard. But we write a check to the government, and that is for. What's always been in the United States, uh, as our founders intended, something called the common good. And that's essential for democracy, in my opinion. And you talk about 
democracy and, you know, how uh, the U.S. has traditionally prided itself on being, you know, the, the center of democracy for the world, the shining light on, you know, shining city on the hill. Central America, American foreign policy in places like Central America talks about prosperity and security. And, but the reality is quite different. The obvious problem in developing countries is poverty. You oh. argue the real problem is plunder. Who are the real beneficiaries? And what interests actually receive the prosperity and security that our tax dollars, at least most of us believe, you know, are intended for good things down there? Yeah. You know, one thing that I would start by saying is, uh, you know, the system of wealth hiding is a global system and it, uh, it is the way it's not sort of a sideshow. It's not like, Oh, this is just happening over here. And you know, the main economies here it is very central to the global economy. So a lot of countries have wealthy elites, you know, think about Latin America or in Africa. Uh, and these elites sure. will often spirit their money out of their home countries, as well as the companies, the corporations that operate in those countries will extract resources and extract value and move it out of the country. And yep. so the wealthy elites will bring their money to a, a Miami. Uh, uh, the African elites will bring their money to the European capitals. This is part of the problem. So for every dollar of aid that goes to Africa, uh, several dollars is leaves in the form of this capital flight and hidden wealth. And I give a case study in the book of, in Angola, uh, the daughter of the former dictator of Angola spirited a, some $2 billion of wealth out of the country. Uh, you know, this is the wealth of a country. You know, they're, they could be investing in a public health infrastructure system. Mm. Uh, but instead, that money has gone to Portugal and to these European banks with the help of PricewaterhouseCooper with the help yeah. of Boston Consulting Group and all the wealth defense enablers that make that extraction possible. And that's the story all over the world. So when we talk about global poverty, we should be as very much focused on how much money is just being siphoned away yes. from these home countries. Well, personal story, I went to Nicaragua in the mid-80s and I was amazed that the uh, capital of Managua, all this after there was an, there was an earthquake there, and people across the world did what they could to help out and to help them rebuild after the earthquake. Well, <laughs> the then president of the country, a dictator, whatever title he had, Samosa, didn't rebuild at all. He just took the money. <laughs> he just played took the money. So when I got there, like fifteen years after the earthquake, the downtown was still. And rubble. It was just nothing but rubble. <laughs> you know, we've had that system for a long time. Um, and hey, I have a, I have a personal little complimentary story. Sure. Because the the hurricane, the, the earthquake relief in, in, in 1971 was coming in right. by planes, and they would land in Managua, and uh, Somoza would take the earthquake relief supplies and 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 have them driven straight to his private compound, <laughs> where he had vast warehouses. And that is the reason why the great baseball player Roberto Clemente died, huh? because huh? he was in Puerto Rico. They loaded up a plane of earthquake supplies for Nicaragua. There was a lot of solidarity between Puerto Rican and, and Nicaraguan baseball players. Uh -huh. So the great 
the great Roberto Clemente got on a plane to, to personally deliver earthquake supplies so they could not be stolen by Somoza. Wow. He was personally going to make sure it went to the people. And the plane crashed after takeoff because it was overloaded. So I kind of personally blame Somoza's corruption for the loss of one of the greatest baseball players in the world. Just side side story. And I was in Puerto Rico when it happened. And so I remember it quite well. And of course, Somoza's incredible greed and disregard for the people, uh, there was a revolution. And, you know, sometimes that happens. And John Kennedy talked about where there's not actual reform, there's going to be revolution. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I wonder, you know, one of the reforms that happened in the United States in the early 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt was part of it. He was many things. He did some real good and some major harm. He called himself a trust buster. There was that powerful populism that came after the Gilded Age in reaction to it. Do you see any signs of that populism today? I think I do. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? I think so. I think that there is a growing recognition that uh, these inequalities are so out of balance and so corrosive to the health of a society. Um, and you are seeing uh, splits within the elites of which Teddy Roosevelt was one of. You know, a oh, yeah. uh, hundred years ago, Andrew Carnegie, not the nicest, nicest guy in the neighborhood. No. <laughs> um, but he, in his golden years, supported an inheritance tax. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt supported the estate tax, a tax on inherited wealth and progressive income tax. Um, they understood that this was going to undermine democratic self-governing societies. Uh, you don't want to have dynastic wealth. We fought a revolution to get away from hereditary monarchies, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think, and you see groups like the Patriotic Millionaires, yes. you see a few dissenters among the billionaires who are saying, you know, this inequality is, is corroding our social fabric. It is dividing us. It's polarizing our society. We need to kind of at least rebalance the economy so it doesn't, all the wealth doesn't funnel to the top. Yeah, it's really trickle up as we've seen over and over and over again. And the, you know, the uh, wealth defense industry knows this and likes it, but other people don't get it. And you mentioned the Patriotic Millionaires Organization. We featured spokespeople for them on this show. I wonder how is that doing? I mean, th th there are people who are very wealthy, and that some of them realize that being in a constant frenzy for ever more wealth isn't healthy. And they, they recognize that, you know, like you have to, if you're going to do a business, if you're going to have an economy, you have to have roads, you have to have infrastructure, you can't have people that are desperately poor. How, how is this movement, you talk about making change, how is this movement uh, progressing, do you think? And how important is this? Well, it is because um, they speak out, in some ways, they challenge this narrative that wealth is you know allocated based on deservedness they they they're saying look right. you know we we ben we benefit from being in a society that makes these public investments um they also make an important point which is these extreme inequalities are not good right. for anybody including the wealthy it creates economic volatility resentment uh polarization that's not 
the kind of society, even if you're super rich, you don't want to necessarily be there. I consider that one of the cracks in the system. You know, mm. this is a system of hidden wealth and you have wealthy people. I actually just talked to somebody who said uh, recently, who said, I have a dynasty. I'm in a dynasty trust. My wealth, I was born into a wealthy family. I'm, I'm stuck in this dynasty trust. I want to break it open. Mm. And, and then you have all these people who work in this sector yes. who are also unhappy, who are leaking data, talking to people like me, telling me how the system works, working with members of Congress to design ways to shut down the loopholes. So you have defectors, whistleblowers, people coming out who are saying the system stinks. And I think that's when you start to know that a system is in trouble when even the people you consider the beneficiaries start rebelling. Yeah, that is good to hear. We like to be optimistic on the show every now and then. We've been <laughs> it, it's we've had this little bit of a pandemic for a while. We've been reading recently about how incredibly well some of the richest among us have done in this pandemic. Well, most people have really suffered economically. You describe it as an quote, an enormous billionaire greed grab, 1.6 trillion over the last 13 months, reflecting just one product of an economic system that enables inequality to not only exist, but to thrive. How does that work? Tell us. Well, you know, I mean, it is, it is worth pausing and just noticing that. I mean, the, 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 you know, when, you know, so many people have lost their lives, oh, lost yeah. their health, lost their savings, uh, that the market has gone crazy, crazy and that the, and the U.S. billionaire class is seeing their wealth surge. We, we, we did a study with the Americans for Tax Fairness last week. Since 1990, you know, the, the billionaire class has seen their wealth go up enormously. But a third of all their wealth gains since 1990 was during the last 13 months, during the pandemic. Whoa. Um, and, and so that's shocking since to me. Since 1990. You know, oh, my God. Since 1990, you know, the... Uh, the, the wealth of the U.S. billionaire class has gone up $4.3 trillion, but $1.6 trillion, as you point out, is in the last year and a half, year and 13 months, basically. So, you know, it just shows that the system is wired now to funnel wealth to the top. It's, it's almost like hardwired to deepen these inequalities. And that has just made us so much less prepared for this pandemic and the response. It's weakened our capacity as a society to overcome this pandemic. Wow. That, uh, t t the numbers just, it's unfathomable. I don't even know what a trillion is. I can't even, but uh, yeah. that they've gone up one third since 1990, just since the pandemic has been around. That is amazing. And some people have got to feel a tad guilty about that, I would think. At, so, so basically, for the average uh, non-wealthy person, if the top super-rich few avoid paying their share of taxes, how does that affect the rest of us? Are we subsidizing them? Put that in like real terms that people can you know understand in terms of regular people. Well, it's it, it's just like if 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 you or I were at a big party, uh, we all went out to dinner with twelve of our friends. And then, you know, two of them, you know, each got a bottle of wine and then they slipped out the kitchen door, uh, you know, before <laughs> the bill, the bill came due. It's like, 
they're freeloading, right? They're, 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 we have to pick up the bill, you know? And that's basically, you know, when the super wealthy are hiding their money, opting out of taxes, it shifts the responsibility onto the rest of us to pay for the care of veterans and pay for infrastructure and pay to clean up whatever, you know, it's like taxes are the price you pay for a civilized society. And, you know, some people are opting out and, uh, and, 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 that's where it really hurts, or or it leads to insufficient investments in the things that really matter, like a working public health system. Uh, so do 40 years of tax avoidance and you make U.S. society underinvested, brittle, fragile, and ill-prepared for whatever comes down the road, like a mm. pandemic. Mm. Wow. If, if they dare call themselves patriots, I would kind of... Uh, upset me a tad. I think that's the antithesis of patriotism, taking but not giving. And, and that uh, story about, you know, ordering some real nice wine and then just ducking out the door. Yeah. And guess who has to pick up the check? All of us. Um, there's been an affordable housing crisis for a long time. How are the ultra wealthy exacerbating that situation? You think about what's going on, you know, in New York City, places that. Well, you you can talk quite a bit about that, and I'm I'm curious about how the ultra wealthy have made the affordable housing crisis worse. You know, I think right now almost all of our larger cities are reeling with intense uh, affordable housing crisis, and there's it's really this global wealth at work. Uh, driving the expansion of the short-term rental industry, Airbnb, just not not mom and pop owners, but these corporate owners taking over buildings, removing them from the rental market. Mm. Um, uh, huge amounts of global wealth coming into cities, buying up luxury property, not to live in it, right. but simply as a way to kind of hold wealth. It's a form of wealth storage. Uh, you know, protecting and preserving their assets by spreading it around lots of places and real estate being one. So that's driving up the cost of land. It's driving up the cost of development because so many resources are going into building empty luxury buildings. We're not building affordable housing buildings. Um, so it, it it's actually having a negative harmful effect on a lot of communities. And actually, I live in Boston where, you know, we've tried to say, well, let's have a luxury transfer tax. And let's discourage vacancy. Oh, and let's require disclosure of who the real owners are, like who's buying up our city. And a lot of cities are now trying to figure out how to do all of those things mm, mm-hmm. to, to protect themselves from this. Um, and this, this gets to a larger question of like, where is this money? You know, we, that when it's hidden, you know, is it on some little Caribbean island? You know, is it on the, in the Cayman Islands? Actually, the hidden wealth is often booked offshore, but it comes back to the United States in the form of investments. And if you have a billion dollars, you need to spread that money around a lot of places. So you're buying art and jewelry and real estate and land, as well as traditional investments in, you know, the stock market and that sort of thing. Of course, they could pay taxes too, but no, a silly concept. <laughs> Oh, and, you know, the climate crisis as well, in the face of the catastrophic climate change, many cities are attempting to be 
global leaders themselves. It sounds like Boston is trying to do that as well uh, on sustainability and achieving carbon reduction goals of the 2016 Paris Climate Accords. The luxury housing boom is constructing huge energy hog buildings. Please say more about that, please. Well, if you think about it, you know, all these cities, if you if you go to New York or Miami or Boston or L.A., the coastal cities for the most part, but Denver as well and others, you see all these luxury towers going up. And just think about the huge amounts of energy involved in building these luxury towers that actually, for the most part, won't even be occupied. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when you drive down the road and you see like a storage unit place, American storage these are safe deposit boxes in the sky. They are global <laughs> wealth storage units. But they, in Boston, this really upset me that, that, you know, they had to build a new frack gas pipeline to power one of these luxury towers, you know, so that everyone would have their gas ignition stove, et cetera, even though no one's, you know, half the units are vacant. You know, it's like, what a horrible use of resources and, and what it, and diametrically, opposite to what we need to be doing we shouldn't be building energy hog buildings we should be retrofitting all our old buildings and making reducing our dependence on on fossil fuel yeah well that's so logical it makes a lot of sense and <laughs> so that's uh, sort of gets in the in the way of things and uh, i do think that people like Donald Trump and some of these super wealthy, they must really, well, I don't think he's as wealthy as he says he is, uh, but I, they, they must think that, you know, we, the people, you know, we're just there to serve them. And, you know, that's how it used to be before the uh, War of Independence from, from England, that, uh, you know, the, the wealthy classes, that's why everybody else existed, was to, to serve their needs. And it's amazing to me that, I guess some people still think that way, and that is rather anti-democratic, to say the least. And I wonder about the what the IRS is doing or can do. The estimated 2019 tax gap, the rift between the total taxes due and those actually collected, is approximately $574 billion, with the largest portion owing to underreporting by the richest 1%. Does, does the IRS have tools? Are they doing anything about this? Have I don't know if enough time has gone by since the Trump era. What can the IRS do about the uh, the tax gap, the, the taxes due? And this is not yeah. even the taxes, you know, the, the money that doesn't pay any taxes. It's off the books. So what's the IRS doing about it? What can they do? Well, they they can do a lot, um, but they have they're they have been decimated. No bad. Their their ability to follow the money and really kind of pursue and un, and unravel these complex tax dodges has been decimated. So, you know, uh, actually, the commissioner of the IRS just said the new tax gap estimate is a trillion dollars. No, oh, jeez. So simply by investing in enforcement on the rich tax dodgers. Uh, uh, just making sure people are obeying the existing rules, not not some of what we're talking about, just hiding money, uh, would bring in a, a trillion dollars in revenue, uh, you know, a year. That is, you know, we're talking about real money, even though. You know, uh, so, um, and, but you're more likely, you're four times more likely to be audited if you collect the earned income credit, which is a, you know, for working families. Than you are if you're a multimillionaire 
you know, using a trust. And the IRS used to have a lot better capacity to oversee, uh, you know, the, 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 the machinations of the super rich. So uh, absolutely, the first thing on my list is beefing up enforcement, mm. putting the resources in, giving the IRS, let them hire, you know, hire some of these disgruntled uh, wealth right. defenders, pay them uh, because they already know how the system works and pay them to close it down. Uh, put put some more cops on the beat. It'll have a you know there'll always be people who are like oh okay they're they're clamping down over here we're going to run over here, but the more you got cops on the beat the less that's going to happen. And then the other thing is just to say these certain kinds of trusts and tax transactions are illegal or mm. they are what the IRS says they're listed, which means Bert if you use one of those we're going to audit you, which is another way of saying don't use this transaction. <laughs> right. So, you know, they don't necessarily outlaw it. They just say, yeah, we're watching you. And that discourages oh, yeah. some of these behaviors. So, so that, that the IRS and the treasury department can do a lot. And yet here we are, you know, everybody hates the IRS, hates the tax man. Well, understandably, because they're going after the wrong people. Uh, <laughs> they're going after working families yes. who are, you know, yes. using the earned income credit. Come on. We're talking about people with $30,000 a year income <sighs> and you're going to harass, harass them, you know, just because they don't have power and they don't have lobbyists. So, you know, we got to basically fix that for starters. And I certainly know people who have been audited and I think, oh, my God, why? Why them? <laughs> But yeah. and it's yeah, that's a scary thought to be uh, to be audited, and I think it's interesting what you say. That, you know, part of the uh, wealth defense industry, these guys know. You know, uh, wealth managers, accountants, the, the people who lay down the smoke screens and obfuscations, they they're in unique positions to become agents of change. And I wonder, I, I can't help but think that you know, dangle a little bit of money out there and play to their conscience, I think some people still have consciences, uh, that, that that can be part of an agent uh, of, of change. What about what Biden is just starting to talk about and what Elizabeth uh, uh, Warren has been talking about for a while? I wonder how realistic those, you know, increases on, on taxes on just, you know, like that portion of the income above a certain uh, amount, if, if that's going anywhere and if that might uh, be something that's realistic. You know, I think it is going somewhere in part because these ideas are incredibly popular. Um, you know, attitudes about taxing the rich have changed a lot in the last, I think, 10 years, 15 years, mm. because it used to be you say, oh, tax the rich. And even even Joe Public would be like, hey, I hope I can be rich someday. Right. Uh, I don't want to raise taxes on the rich. And those are those are those people are working hard. What's changed is people understand that these folks are rigging the rules and actually undermining opportunity for other people, including the opportunity to get rich. Like they're they're using their wealth and power to block opportunity for others. And and so I think, you know, like Senator Warren's wealth tax proposal, which is an annual wealth tax of two cents, two percent on wealth over 50 million. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you have less than 50 million in wealth, <laughs> you don't have to worry about this tax. And if you have a billion, then you start wealth over that you pay at a three percent rate. So guess what? 70, 80% of the public 
including the majority of Republicans and independents, think that's a good idea. That's that's really interesting. So that bodes well for uh, President Biden's call to say, look, you know, we need to make these public investments. We need to, uh, you know, invest in infrastructure. We need to do things that make this a better society. And the first wealth, the first folks that should pay are people with incomes over 400,000. Well, I would say it should be incomes over 3 million for starters. There's that top one-tenth of 1%. The first 5 trillion of new revenue should come from that super rich group who've been shielding and hiding their money. And so I, and I think that's popular, that's populist and popular and only our, you know, money captured billionaire dominated political system Mm -hmm. can, can hold back the dam of overwhelming public pressure to do something. I I do think it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the uh, politicians, Democrat and Republican, you know, they're, they're loath to mess with wealthy interests because that's where they get their campaign money. However, they've seen from Bernie Sanders' campaign, they can get money anyway. They don't have, they're, they're a lot freer now, thanks to the internet, than they used to be. And that maybe, maybe they have some wiggle room. They can move away from just kowtowing to the super rich, especially when, you know, they look at the polling numbers. They care about getting reelected. In fact, you know, that's really like all they care about. And they can do it and, and, I would think they'd start to see that this is popular, as you say. And for yeah. those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Chuck Collins, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, a great organization, where he co-edits inequality.org. His new book is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. That's a good title, I must say. Uh, so... Um, As states and nations struggled to recover in the aftermath of the pandemic, awareness of of how the top one-tenth of one percent has profited tremendously, uh, do you think there there might be a higher intolerance for games that enable their head? How how might this, we leverage this moment to shift the rules so that they might serve us all? And what are some specific uh, items on the blueprint for making this change? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, building out what we were just talking about, I think take the fact that this is these are popular ideas, you know, and and that we do, you know, we we hold politicians to account by asking, you know, questions like, okay, do you think there should be a separate rule, set set of tax rules for the richest one tenth of one (laughs) percent? Whereas, you know, the rest of us pay taxes, you know, we, we literally have our taxes taken out of our paychecks every every pay period right. uh, in withholding. There's not a lot of games most working people can pay play with their taxes. And yet the super rich have a separate set of rules. Why do you tolerate that, Representative Jones? You mm-hmm. know, why? Who, who, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the rest of us or the top one-tenth of one percent? Yeah. And I think that will, that's, you know, going to have a lot, uh, that will create kind of the pressure and the movement to address this. And, and I would say enforcement, mm-hmm. I think we need to restore the value of the estate tax. We have this tax on, on inheritances at the end of life. Right now, a couple with $24 million or less does not pay the federal estate tax when the wealth transfers. Um, but it's 
full of holes mm. and there's all kinds of trusts that circumvent it uh, and these dynasty trusts. And so, um, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders has a, a terrific estate tax reform bill. I know President Biden is interested in it. You know, that could go a long way. Uh, and then transparency. Why is it that companies, you know, it's one thing to say privacy, but this is secrecy, including secrecy from law enforcement. Mm. Why can you create a limited liability company in Delaware and never have to disclose who the real owners are? And this is part of the problem going back to housing. Who's buying up this land? Who's buying up this housing? Is it a Russian oligarch? Mm -hmm. Is it my neighbor down the street? We don't know. Cities should have the ability to know. Law enforcement should have the power to know. And good news, Bert, last year, at the end of last year, didn't get a lot of publicity, Congress passed, the former president signed the Corporate Transparency Act, requiring corporations to disclose who their beneficial owners are to the Treasury Department, overriding states like Delaware. Um, Now, there's loopholes. Trusts are not included. Private equity is not included. The new civil uh, law foundation created in the great state of New Hampshire is exempt from this disclosure. So we got to plug up a few holes, but it's exactly moving in the right direction. And that's what Europe did, has done that's ahead of us. They have started to require corporate transparency and disclosure of tax payments on a country by country basis. You know, and, and, and if you start to do that, and then back to what we were talking about, the UK and the European Union and the United States all get together and we create several important agreements. Let's have a corporate minimum income tax in every country. So these companies like Apple and Nike aren't just pitting countries against each other in who will keep lowering their taxes. Mm. Let's create a floor. Uh, in the advanced industrial countries. Um, If we do all those things, enforcement, transparency, shut down the tax loopholes that are, have nothing to do with real economic activity Mm -hmm. and international cooperation, we can totally shut this hidden wealth system down in a couple of years. It's a, it's, it's within our reach. We've certainly made a lot of changes. I remember when, uh, Massachusetts Governor Mike Dukakis ran for president in 88, and he talked about beefing up the IRS. That was not popular, but I suspect it's different now. It's really changed since 1988. There's a lot that's happened, and it's it's moving in a good way. You point out that about 25% of the wealth defense industry are just anti-tax libertarians. Another 25% are actually troubled with the fact that they're making the world a worse place which leaves 50% in the middle. I wonder how they might be encouraged to swing the way of greater equality and democracy, and if it's starting to happen. You know, part of it is, and and this is one of the hopes of my book, is that people will understand and bring greater scrutiny to that sector. And more people will say, uh, uh, Uncle Joe, are you helping the billionaires hide money? Uh, oh, well, a nephew, uh, 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 you know, hmm. um, you know, meaning that it becomes less, you know, benign that people don't, oh, these, these are just helping families, you know, well, actually you're helping a tiny slice of the richest families in the world 
at the expense, the expense. of all the other families, you know? Right, so, right. um, so I think more scrutiny, more pressure, more pressure on their professional associations to not tolerate certain behavior, more scrutiny over, you know, a lot of these people say, Hey, look, we're just, a, we're just obeying the law, right? You know, we're, we're just uh -huh, helping, right. uh, you know, but in fact, they're writing the law. <laughs> they're writing the rules. How and, convenient. And yeah, they're writing even the rules the great, for themselves. Even, even in the great state of New Hampshire, you have a tiny little trust industry that keeps changing the laws to yeah. auction off the state sovereignty. You know, so, uh, you know, that, so I, and I think, but one, one good thing is, you know, that 25% that feel, you know, yeah. bad, bad about what they're doing. They are leaking information. Yeah. They are blowing the whistle. They are talking publicly, and that will have an impact on this whole, uh, you know, whether the sector gets regulated and closed down. And you know, like anything, you want to say, "Hey, look, we have really useful, meaningful work." Um, you know, I end the book with a a graduation address to the Harvard Business School graduates uh, this coming May basically saying don't work in the wealth defense industry you know work in another field you you can get well paid in other sectors but don't help the rich get richer it's not a it's not a meaningful uh and and um rewarding yeah righteous righteous path you know <laughs> yeah for sure and there's other ways of making money i think it's fascinating really if one looks at american history this stuff that we're talking about having the system work for everybody is deeply patriotic. I mean, since the War of Independence, you know, there was a struggle about who would pay for the uh, War of Independence. And of course, it fell on working people for the most part to protect the, the creditors. And it fell on the debt. This has gone on for a long time. And it's really traditional. And I, I, I get a sense of optimism from you, Chuck Collins. And uh, it's good to hear that uh, we're starting to make it happen. The book is called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. We, and it affects so many different things from uh, climate change, racial and economic justice. Uh, we can do this, close down the hidden wealth apparatus, as you say. That's, that's your words. And uh, we can have a system of finance that works for everyone, not just the planet's billionaires. Chuck Collins, thanks so much for being with us. Always great to hear about your very important work and uh, great to have you on the show today. And uh, boy, we're in a good place now in America, I think. Yeah. Thank you, Bert, for the conversation. And thanks for helping explain a lot of really complicated but important issues. I leave that to you. Thank you so much, Chuck Collins. Thanks. Then that's got so high and that's not so loose so the bible said and it still is news mama may have papa may have god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own strong gets more while the weak ones fade empty pockets don't ever make the 
Oh.